You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Psalm 123. A song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Amanda. Good morning. I'm going to go ahead and invite Dan uh, to come up on stage. And as he comes, would you give him a big welcome uh, from our church family? The good good Reverend Dan Murata uh, here is a great friend, a great friend of mine personally, but also a great friend to Park Church. Dan and his wife, Rachel, uh, were at Park Church from 2012 to 2014 and uh, helped lead in gospel communities and trainings and different things uh, that they did here. Had two kids while they were here. Subsequently, 2014, moved uh, to Falls Church, Virginia, where he did a pastoral residency of sorts, and then planted Redeemer Anglican Church in the heart of Richmond, Virginia in 2016. They now have four kids and uh, a really beautiful family, wonderful family, and a really wonderful church body. It's a church family that we've been uh, big fans of, supporting, financially partnering with, and we love what God is doing in and through Redeemer Anglican Church. And so every summer, pretty much, Dan comes back, opens God's Word for us. It's a great chance to see him, for him to minister to us. He's a wonderful preacher, pastor, and man of God, and we're just grateful for you, brother. So yeah, please bless us as you open the Word. Thanks, Gary. Hey, good morning, Park. Good morning to you all. Uh, it is It really is wonderful to be back. I mean it. I'm not just saying that. It's so good to be back here. Uh, Park was a wonderful home for our family uh, for the two years we were here. And and two years is kind of almost an exaggeration. Like, I think it was technically 22 months that we were here. But it was a very formative and important 22 months. Uh, So much so that we want to come back every single year. Uh, We were sad to leave, but it means that we get to make the annual pilgrimage back to to Denver. Um, I want to begin by saying thank you to you all as a congregation and also to Park's staff and and elders, because to my knowledge, you all have done something that I don't think anybody else, any other church has done. Uh, Maybe I'm wrong, but um, you all helped plant a church in a different time zone, in another denomination, in like a whole other city. Um, You've been supporting us financially all these years and continue to do so, which is astonishing. and whenever I tell people in Richmond uh, that, like, Redeemer was helped, you know, plant, was, uh, was assisted in planting by Park Church in Denver, they're like, oh, that's, like, so great. Is Park an Anglican church? I'm like, no. And then they say, oh, but is, is it, like, kind of Anglican? And it's like, no, not even a little bit. Like, it's, <laughs> like, it's, it's amazing. Like, and, and I'm sure, like, our different congregations would have maybe some, like, robust debate on maybe some secondary issues when it comes to, you know, the good and proper and right ways to follow Christ. But we have absolute unity on the essentials of the gospel. And so for that reason, it's just such a joy to be back uh, with you all. We sort of think of ourselves as, like, Park Church East. Like, 
we'll just kind of be your East Campus, maybe. Um, now, here's the deal. You all are in the midst of a sermon series on uh, the Psalms, and you're calling it Christ in the Psalms. And in this way, our two congregations are very similar. We are also doing a summer series called Christ in the Psalms, but we're in the 50s, because we're like a lot younger than y'all. You guys are in the 120s. Um, you're in the Psalms of Ascent, these poetic songs that Hebrew people recited and sang to one another as they made regular pilgrimages to the city of Jerusalem. And a number of weeks ago, Gary gave a really excellent orientation to the Psalms of Ascent. And uh, he didn't ask me to say this, I promise, but if you missed that orientation, um, go online, go back a few weeks ago and listen in, because it really will help you understand what these Psalms are and how they function in the life of God's people. Um, in the past weeks, you've done Psalm 121, Psalm 122, and then today, we're in Psalm 123. Let me say a prayer. Gracious Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit right now to open our ears and our hearts and our minds and our bodies to your word, that we may be transformed into people who love you and who love each other and who love our neighbors and our city. Amen. If you uh, don't have the text in front of you, uh, you might find it helpful to have it with you as we kind of go along so you can maybe take it out, open back up to Psalm 123. As you're doing that, uh, just a quick story. Uh, a number of years ago, when our family first moved to Denver, this is true, we didn't know a single person within a thousand mile radius of the city. Uh, so as you might imagine, we needed to make friends. Um, and I would guess that there are probably a few of you who are in that exact boat. Like during the pandemic, your job went remote. Uh, you're working online on Zoom and you hate it, but it's okay. It gives you all kinds of freedom. And so you realized that you don't want to live in Kansas City anymore. You want to live in Denver. Sorry, Gary. Um, but it's true. Like that's the, boat, that's the boat that you're in. So you moved here and you need to make some friends. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. You're here to make friends. Good decision. You're in the right spot. Now, that was, that was our boat. We needed to make some friends, and I'm not very good at most things, but the one thing I do know how to do is throw a neighborhood party, so that was my default. I went around, and I knocked on all the doors of our neighbors kind of around our house and horribly embarrassed my wife and my kids. They're like, Dad, stop talking to strangers. I'm like, it'll be great. They're not going to stay strangers very long. Soon we'll all be friends. My wife's like, that's not true. Um, but I, as I knocked on doors, I invited people to come to our front porch for drinks and dessert, and dessert like the next Sunday evening. And I was shocked at how often I heard the word no. Like, I'm from the South. When people invite you to a party, you don't say no. You don't even have to want to go. But you need to say something way more polite. Like, you need to say something like, that sounds lovely. Oh, I'd be delighted to be there. Uh, unfortunately, I have a prior engagement. But I send my regrets. Bless your heart. Like... <laughs> That's how you decline a party invitation. You don't just say no. And yet, people said no. Not no thank you, not I wish I could, just a flat no. And by the like, ninth time this happened, I, well, my, my curiosity was piqued. And so I asked the person, I was, was a man, I was standing on his front porch, I had just knocked on his door, and he said no. And I said, why not? And he looked at me and he was like, man, it's Sunday night. The Broncos are playing. <laughs> please don't judge me. Here was my response. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that. I don't really follow the NFL. <laughs> I will never forget the look of utter contempt 
on his face towards me. Like he looked at me like I was a cockroach on his front porch or like maybe a dirty diaper that someone had left out or like a clog of hair that had been pulled from a bathtub drain. Like just utter contempt and like his eyebrows furrowed and his mouth kind of sneered and then he like shook his head and closed the door. Now, that's kind of silly and like moderately embarrassing, and, and don't worry, I, I eventually culturally assimilated, and I'm a Broncos fan, all my kids have jerseys, um, but have you, have you ever had someone look at you with pure contempt? It's an awful feeling, and I just want to kind of quickly define terms here. So, contempt is not the same thing as anger. Everybody feels anger, but that's not what contempt is. Contempt is something more like hatred mixed with disgust. Contempt is when you think of someone or something as being despicable, unworthy of even existing. Arthur Brooks, writing for The Atlantic, says, people often say that our problem in America today is incivility or intolerance. That is incorrect. It is something far worse, contempt that noxious brew of anger and disgust. It's not just contempt for other people's ideas, but also for other people. In the words of a philosopher, Schopenhauer, contempt is the, quote, unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. Now, I wanted to quote that because I haven't gotten to use the word unsullied in a while. So, but but let me say that again. Contempt is the unsullied conviction, the pure conviction of the worthlessness of another person. If you've ever seen the brilliant Pixar movie, Inside Out, uh, you might remember the character Disgust. Uh, She looks through the eyes of the main character, this adolescent girl, and she sees her parents trying to feed her pizza with broccoli on top, and she like recoils with revulsion, and then the anger character sitting right next to her like blows up and screams out like, congratulations, San Francisco, you've ruined pizza. That scene is contempt. It's anger mixed with disgust. And contempt is a cocktail that is served cold, not hot. If you're burning with rage against somebody, you are not holding them in contempt because you are actually finding it worth your time to be angry at them and to engage them, maybe even to get mad at them and yell at them, maybe even debate them. No, it's when you think that someone is not even worth the effort to argue with them that you have entered into the territory of contempt. Contempt simply says, I'm better than you, you're less than me. And friends, you and I woke up this morning in a culture of contempt, did we not? I would suspect that you recognize it as much as I do, that you and I are living in a time when our nation is more divided than any other time since the Civil War. And as a priest who serves in the city of Richmond, the former capital of the Confederacy, that is especially poignant for me and for my family and for the church that we lead. The divisions that we experience are not only political, they're also economic, they're generational, they're racial, they're cultural. And these divisions are marked primarily, not solely, but primarily by contempt between opposing tribes who by and large view the other side as subhuman. So whether this is true whether you're talking about conservatives and progressives, or boomers and Gen Z, or wealthy elites versus working class poor, or U.S. citizens versus immigrants, like on it goes. The culture of contempt in which we dwell, it drives so much of what we do. This is why we virtue signal to our own tribes on social media. With every post, we are saying, please don't find me contemptible. I'm a good person. I'm on your team. 
It drives the groceries we buy, the clothes we wear, the music we listen to, the shows we stream, the friends with whom we associate, all driven by this deep desire to be the right sort of person and avoid being a contemptible person. And as much as you and I might be tempted to think that we live in this uniquely difficult and stressful period of history where we have to deal with contempt and ancient people who like lived in earlier eras before us were kind of like kind and gentle and probably folksy, um, it's not true. The story of the Bible from beginning to end is the story of a people who continually find themselves the object of contempt from neighbors, and they are exhausted and worn out by it. The Bible itself has a lot to say about contempt. Listen, if you can. The Bible begins with the story of creation, where there's this God who makes a wonderfully creative and diverse world and then populates it with wonderfully creative and diverse peoples and makes them to dwell at peace both with Him and with each other. But then what happens in the story? Human beings rebel against God, breaking the core relationship between humanity and God, and thus fracturing all relationships. Contempt enters the story. Husband and wife turn against each other in Adam and Eve. The older brother Cain murders his younger brother Abel. The Hebrews are enslaved by the Egyptians. Later, after they're free, the Israelites are continually plagued by hostile tribes of Philistines and Moabites who view them contemptuously and who with genocidal purpose seek to wipe them from the face of the earth. Later in the story of the Old Testament, the Assyrians and the Babylonians eventually conquer the northern and southern tribes of Israel respectively and begin working to undermine and eliminate the people and the culture of God. And even when you get to the New Testament in the era of Jesus, You have God's people held in contempt by the Roman Empire, and you even have Jewish people themselves, contemporaries of Christ, saying things like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) But in Jesus, the contempt of this world collides with the mercy of God. And the gospel of Jesus actually points us forward towards the day when all relationships will be marked by mercy and not by contempt. This is the promise and hope of the Christian faith. And it's into that larger story of contempt and mercy that we have our text today, Psalm 123. And it's important for you to know, if you want to understand Psalm 123, where it lies in the story of contempt and mercy in universal history laid out in the story of the Bible. And so here's what we're going to do. If you've got the text in front of you, we're going to look at this text, this psalm today. It's mercifully short, isn't it? It's kind of nice. Thanks, Gary, for the short one. Um, We're going to ask a question of this text along the way. We're going to ask, very simply, how can we learn to see with eyes of mercy instead of eyes of contempt? How can you and I learn to see with eyes of mercy instead of eyes of contempt? And we're going to do this in two ways. We're going to do this by focusing our attention and by recognizing our complicity. And if you're the kind of person that takes notes, these are your categories. You're welcome to jot these down if you want. Focusing our attention, recognizing our complicity. Let's get into it. I'm going to read the first couple verses. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hands of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. The psalmist, the author, is using the imagery of a servant's eyes and a master's hands. And the eyes are supposed to look with expectant anticipation towards hands that are extended and open to give. 
And even though you and I are all smart enough to understand this metaphorical imagery, it's mostly lost on us anyway. Do you know why? Because you and I don't imagine that everything we have in life comes from one source. You and I tend to imagine that all the stuff of our lives actually comes from a wide variety of sources, right? Like, where does food come from? It comes from sprouts. Uh, Where does clothing come from? It comes from rustic threads. And everything else comes from Amazon, right? Like, that's where stuff comes from. But if you... (laughs) That's kind of dumb. But if you are the average, normal, middle-class person in the ancient Near East during the time when Psalm 123 was written... Who are you? Well, you are most likely a servant on a wealthy farmer's estate. That's the average person. You're not really a slave who's like oppressed and downtrodden, uh, but you're not like economically independent either. You're simply an employee on a farm. You work hard, and then everything that you have in life, from the room that you sleep in, to the food that you eat, to the clothes that you wear, all of it comes from one place, the hand of your master. And so the master's hand in this psalm for the average man, woman, and child is not a hand of oppression. It's the hand of provision. It's a positive image. And the positive image of the master's hand is contrasted with the contempt and scorn that the author is experiencing from other people. Verse 3, we've had more than enough of contempt. Verse 4, our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease and the contempt of the proud. So that phrase, more than enough, think about this, small doses of contempt directed at you are kind of like small doses of poison, not enough to kill. They're not lethal, but they're enough to make you sick. And the larger and more, fre- more frequent the dosage of contempt, the more time that you spend in environments with people who treat you with that horrible, icy cold cocktail of anger and disgust, the sicker you feel. Uh, This is true. Studies have actually been done on the biochemical effect of experiencing contempt from another person. Scientists have put people in controlled environments where they are treated deliberately with contempt, and then they take blood samples along the way to see what's happening physically, biologically, biochemically inside the body while you are experiencing contempt from another person. You know what happens? When someone treats you contemptuously, in your bloodstream, there are spikes in stress hormones, mostly cortisol and adrenaline. And in situations of sustained periods of contempt, patients' blood cells actually begin to deteriorate. So here's the short answer. Experiencing contempt from another person does not only wear you down mentally and emotionally and maybe spiritually, it actually harms your body biologically. Some of you may have heard of or perhaps even read uh, Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score in which the author examines the long-term effects of trauma on the body. When you live in an environment, you might say a culture of contempt for a prolonged and sustained period of time, what you experience is actually real trauma to both the mind and to the soul, but also to the body. The psalmist here in this text isn't using the word trauma, is he, right? So if you're like scanning the text right now going, I don't know, I'm kind of calling bluff on this guy, like the word trauma is not in here. Sure, that's a word we invented later. But that's what he's talking about. He's describing, he's describing trauma. And so I ask you, here's just a simple question for you. Where have you had more than enough of somebody else's contempt for you? 
you know, uh, I'm, this is true in Richmond. I, I, I presume it's likely true in Denver as well. But during pandemic quarantine, there were so many marriages that were already strained and stressed. And then those people basically got locked in a room together for two years. And the pressure of that has cracked so many marriages. And so some of you may unfortunately know exactly what it feels like to have the person with whom you most desire intimacy actually be a person who looks at you with scorn and contempt. Perhaps you've also experienced this at work, maybe from an employer above you or employees beneath you, or maybe peer coworkers alongside of you. They got to know maybe your religious and spiritual beliefs. Maybe they got to know your political convictions. Maybe you just have a weird assortment of peculiar quirks that is slowly driving them crazy. But for whatever reason, they now hold you in contempt. And you can feel it, and it feels like nausea in your stomach every time you step foot into the office or are around them, or even just when their face appears on the Zoom call. Maybe you feel it in your neighborhood as you've gotten to know the people that live around you, or maybe you feel it in your extended family, and that's why your Thanksgiving trip this year is going to be so short and mercifully brief, because you can't handle. You've had more than enough of the contempt of your relatives. The author's point here in this text is actually not very complicated. It's very simple. When you are traumatized by the scorn and contempt of other people, focus your attention on the hands of the master because he is the one who provides everything you have already. So where else would you direct your eyes? Ask God for mercy when you've had more than enough, more than you can handle. When you just can't take it anymore, look to God. That's Psalm 123. And so the follow-up question would be, To whose hands are you looking? Where are you focusing your attention? Where are you lifting your eyes? Maybe it's a trusted friend. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a counselor or a therapist. Maybe a pastor or a staff person here at Park. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a sibling. Or maybe it's a form of comfort. Because when you and I are hurting, we look for quick, tangible remedies. And so we self-medicate with what author John Mark Comer calls the dietary four horsemen of the apocalypse. Sugar processed carbs, caffeine, and alcohol, right? Or some assortment of those four, or maybe all at the same time, which sounds terrible, actually. Um, Or maybe it's distraction, right? Because sometimes you can't medicate directly. Sometimes you just need to forget about it. Maybe you're very disciplined with what you put in your body through your mouth, but maybe you're not so disciplined about what you put in your body through your eyes, Maybe you're binge watching four hours of straight entertainment just to take my mind off the fact that my boss thinks I'm an idiot and I'm I'm worthless. Or maybe it's pornography because you're so sick of people looking at you with contempt and you just want to find someone who will look at you with desire. And so as your eyes begin to dart around looking for reprieve from the scorn and contempt of others, Psalm 123 comes to you and it kind of puts its finger under your chin and it lifts up your face. And it says to you, the Lord's hands, the master's hands are everything that you need. So whatever you need, the only place to get it is from him. And so for you and I together this morning, as people who suffer from contempt from other people, whether it's directly for your Christian faith or whether it's for something else, your political convictions, your cultural heritage, the color of your skin, the peculiar habits you've developed over the years, when you've had more than enough Resist the temptation to look for relief anywhere else other than the God who loves you and who is ready to wrap you in a cloak of mercy. Now, 
It would be nice if we could just kind of end the sermon right there and move to prayer and a song and just kind of conclude the service. But the problem is, is that you and I are not only innocent victims and bystanders in this culture of contempt. We also participate in this culture of contempt, do we not? We are in fact complicit with it. And if there's something inside of you that balks against that, let me just give us a term that will help diagnose our complicity in this culture of contempt. The term is, it sounds confusing at first, but we're going to unpack it. The term is motive attribution asymmetry. Okay? Sounds complicated. It's actually super simple. Motive attribution asymmetry. Motive, what's driving you? Attribution, like presuming or assuming or labeling somebody else, not yourself, somebody else. Attribution. Asymmetry, the opposite or inverse of whatever I am. So, I assume that what's driving you, and I'm not talking to you about it or listening to you, I'm just assuming that what's driving you is the opposite or inverse of what's driving me. My motives are good, your motives are bad, right? Motive attribution asymmetries where you believe that you and people like you are motivated by love and benevolence, and other people, the enemies way out there, are motivated by hate and evil. On these grounds, I don't have to listen or care about or engage or reason or debate with or even acknowledge the validity of the other person or the other tribe. Motive attribution asymmetry is actually really simple and it pops up all the time. It explains why when you lose your temper, it's because you had a long day and nobody understands. But when your spouse loses their temper, it's because they're a jerk, right? (laughs) Some of you are like, oh gosh, (laughs) I accused someone of that this morning. Yeah, it pops up all the time. Motive attribution asymmetry explains why when you express your beliefs, what are you doing? When you, when you express like your conviction about something, whether it's like the best craft brewery in town or something as you know, important as like a political belief or like a spiritual conviction, like whether you're expressing something, what are you doing? You are explaining and unpacking the reasonableness and the logic of your point of view. But when someone else expresses a contrary point of view, they are parroting propaganda, right? In our culture of contempt, we are not innocent. And as you're listening to this, if there's something inside of you that is rising up against this and you're saying like, okay, not so fast, guest preacher. Like, you don't know me. You're not from, like, you don't know us. I'm not even, I'm not contemptuous towards other people. I'm not even angry. Listen, contempt is served hot or cold? Cold. I'm not saying you're a rageaholic. One of the most... common and frequent forms of contempt is simply dismissal, a refusal to even engage. So here's a different way to ask some of the same questions. Who is it in your life that you don't have time for? Meaning like, it's just not worth the effort. It's just not worth the energy. Like, they'll never change. They'll never understand. Who have you written off? That's contempt. Contempt towards others destroys relationships. And so whether it's a marriage or the relationship between a parent and a child or between coworkers or neighbors, it's contempt that is actually one of the most corrosive things to human relationships. There's a a researcher named John Gottman who runs a research institute, and most of their studies are done on marriage relationships. And after watching a couple interact for just one hour, Gottman can predict with 94% accuracy whether or not the couple will divorce within three years. 
And you know what they base all that research on? It's not anger or defensiveness or even like whether somebody had an affair or not. It's simply on one thing, the amount of contempt that one or both parties are showing for the other. Contempt erodes and destroys relationships. And friends, this is true not only for our human relationships horizontally, this is also true for our relationship with God. Contempt towards God destroys the relationship. And again, some of you might be thinking like, you're not talking about me, I'm not angry at God. Again, this is not about rage or about anger. One of the most common and frequent forms of contempt is what? Dismissal. It's not worth the time. It's not worth the effort. So whenever you find yourself, as I have, and I'm sure some of us, if not all of us have before, whenever you find yourself in that place where you do not have time for God, where it does not seem to be worth the effort, that is actually a form of contempt towards God, and contempt destroys relationships. And so all of us, in one way or another, tend to have this motive attribution asymmetry, not just towards each other, but actually towards God. And here's the form that it takes in our relationship to God. It sounds usually something like this. I don't think that what God wants for me is as good as what I want for me, <laughs> right? Like we all have our personal goals for our lives and for our kind of own health and well-being. And some of us, maybe all of us, at some deep level within the core of who we are, have this suspicion that perhaps God is holding out on us, that perhaps He does not want as good a life for us as we want for ourselves. After all, that's the original temptation. If you go all the way back with me to Genesis chapter 3, the very original temptation towards human beings was to suspect that perhaps God's holding out, that perhaps He doesn't want good things for you the way you want good things for you. And so earlier in this sermon, when we talked about how Psalm 123 puts its finger under our chin and lifts our eyes and directs our attention towards the hands of God, there are probably many of us this morning who would think, actually, that's the very place I can't look because God's hands don't provide the life I want or the life I need. How can you tell me to look towards God's hands when I've had more than enough and I'm exhausted and weary and worn out? when that's actually the very person, if he exists at all, that I can't trust. And so we find that we're stuck in this place where we not only hold each other in contempt, we actually hold God in contempt. And we hold God in contempt because we assume that He does the same thing to us. We assume that God holds us in contempt. After all, He feels so distant sometimes. We feel perhaps dismissed by God. Maybe we don't have His full attention. Maybe His attention isn't focused on us. And so we feel the contempt of God. We return contempt in kind. And all of this leaves us in this place where we're saying to God, I can't look to your hands. And you know how God actually responds to that? Listen if you can. You know how God responds to that? He actually opens His hands, and in Jesus, He shows us His hands. And in Jesus, God shows us that His hands are, in fact, pierced by contempt. Listen, in Jesus, God Himself becomes contemptible. In Jesus, God subjects Himself to the scorn and contempt of His own creation. We see it in His birth, 
in his rejection and mockery that he endured in his life, in his betrayal, in his arrest, in his trial, in his torture. We see it most clearly in his crucifixion, where Jesus is stripped naked and hung out to die slowly as a public spectacle, where passersby would look upon him with a mixture of what? Hatred and disgust, and then dismiss him and go on their way. The cold cocktail of contempt. Christ nailed to the cross, and his hands are pierced by the contempt of humanity. And so, when we are reading Psalm 123, you and I are not reading this as ancient Hebrews, are we? That's not who we are. We are 21st century people. And so, we are reading this, and we might begin to imagine the hands of God to which the psalmist calls us to look are actually the hands that bear the puncture wounds of iron nails because of the hands of Jesus. And so, the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 123 is the pierced hands of Christ, the one who endured contempt in order to do what? In order to show you and I mercy. The way God shows mercy. If you ever wonder, like, okay, mercy sounds like a wonderful concept, but how? Can you please be less abstract for the love? Here's how God shows you mercy when you have had more than enough. He shows you mercy in the death of Christ. He shows you mercy by taking that contempt in this world onto himself so that you might be free from it. When we turn our eyes towards the pierced hands of Christ and find mercy, what we find is mercy both for ourselves, wonderfully, but also something we didn't expect to find, which is mercy for other people that we currently find contemptible. This gives us the ability to see with the eyes of mercy. This answers the question, how do we begin to see with eyes of mercy and not eyes of contempt? Here, let's give an example. If you are married, I know not everybody's married, but um, either you're married or you're currently in a church where there are people who are married, right? So this matters for you either way. It does. When you realize, husbands and wives, that you are not morally superior to your spouse— and that you have been holding both them and God in contempt, and that God's response to your contempt is mercy, it will shatter you in the best possible way. Your self-righteousness will break and fall apart, and in the wreckage of your former pride, your former pride, you will begin to see with eyes of mercy, perhaps for the very first time. And your marriage might indeed begin to be marked by mercy for the very first time and not what it's been in past years, which is bizarre competition to see which one of you is more right. Now, it takes other shapes in other places in our work. Let's think about our jobs. When you realize that the people with whom you work are worthy of your time and your energy and your patience and even your curiosity— And yet, you have written so many of them off as unworthy and less than. And then you realize that in Jesus, God has allowed you to write him off, and God's response to you writing him off is to show you mercy. Then your attitude and your relationship towards your coworkers will be transformed. And you will find in Jesus such a deep well of affection and engagement for your coworkers that they will never be able to exhaust it. Listen, you have neighbors, and your problems with your neighbors are probably not what my problems used to be, which is that they were Broncos fans and I wasn't, right? You have different problems with your neighbors. But you have neighbors with whom you profoundly disagree, and through the pierced hands 
of the God who suffered contempt in order to show mercy, you can, through Jesus, use new eyes of mercy and begin to see your neighbors truly with value and dignity and worth and honor, and you can begin to engage them as such. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we ask right now that you would reveal to us the ways in which we have participated and been complicit in this culture of contempt in which we live. And you would help us to first receive and embrace the mercy that you extend to us in the shed blood of Jesus. And from your sacrifice, Lord Jesus, you would help us to be transformed and begin to look outwards and see our neighbors and even our city with eyes of mercy and not eyes of contempt. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.